The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Friday, August 7, 2015, in a small town in Vermont, workers at the Department for Children and Families entered the workday and started thinking about what the weekend would hold for them. Lara Sobel had plans to go home to her two-spirited young daughters to be joined later by her husband. No one in the office could have predicted the bloodshed that lay ahead, a murderous rampage that had already begun hours earlier in a small country farmhouse. Join me now as we take a look at the quadruple homicide that devastated an entire community, leaving it forever changed. You'll hear how a respected social worker and three members of the killer's family were targeted for trying to help a mother and her innocent child. Barrie, Vermont had always been a quiet town, safe and cheap, plenty of jobs, self-proclaimed the granite capital of the world. The area naturally attracted hard-working men looking to build homes and provide good lives for their families. But over the years, the granite work waned and the makeup of the town shifted. Although Barrie managed to maintain a general sense of timelessness, with its idyllic main street in downtown, fit to be the image on a postage stamp, an increase in drug use and crime couldn't help but change the small American town. And one of the people who knew that firsthand was 48-year-old Lara Sobel. Throughout her career as a social worker for DCF, the Department for Children and Families, Lara knew a very different Barry to the one that existed on the surface of their shiny Main Street. The Barry she knew included families living in absolute poverty, where tensions ran high between partners, and where single mothers had little choice but to work even if their child was sick or lose their job. Even if childcare was unavailable, there was a frequent need for social workers to intervene in order to protect children from harm. And that was Lara's life, the children. Lara had attended the University of Vermont before interning with the DCF in another troubled town in Vermont, St. Albans. Eventually, social work landed Lara in Barry, where she put her significant people skills to the test, showing up for the children every day. For Lara, every day became a new mission, not to pass judgment on families she became involved with, but to use her infectious smile and idealism to offer them an opportunity to change and show them an alternate path to the one they were on. Lara's mission wasn't to pull families apart, it was to keep them together. One woman who benefited from Lara's experience and kindness over the years was Naomi Walker, a woman on the verge of destroying her life, with addiction almost costing her family. 
but Lara entered Naomi's life like a beacon of hope in the darkness and helped her find her way. Instead of breaking Naomi's family apart, Naomi credited Lara for saving it, giving her the chance to get clean and change her life for the better. In her home life, Lara had a loving relationship with her husband and their two daughters. She was racing to become strong and spirited young women, gifting them with a solid backbone of her Jewish faith. Chesed, the Hebrew concept of compassion, was a concept Lara's religious community knew her to embody and was evident to whoever encountered her. Social work was just another way for Lara to live out her values, and she attempted to sow the seeds of kindness into every case she handled. In 2015, another case landed on Lara's already overburdened pile, Jody Herring. That year in January, Berlin Elementary School filed a report after Jody's nine-year-old daughter Emma missed 15 days of school with the year only half over. Truancy reports were mandated, but that wasn't the first report the school had filed about Jody that January. Jody had drawn a lot of attention to herself in the past month, spreading accusations that a family member had molested her daughter, showing up battered at the school claiming her ex-boyfriend had beaten her up, while reporting homelessness as well. The stability for a child just wasn't there, and it was clear to the school someone needed to intervene. Sadly, Jody Herring's case was not unique. Lara had seen cases like hers many times over the years. In an average year, the Department for Children and Families investigates approximately 3,000 cases of child abuse or neglect. By 2015, Jody herself was no stranger to DCF. Of Jody's three daughters, she already lost custody of two. For decades, Jody had been in and out of custody hearings, a tall and gaunt figure haunting the courthouse hallways as she waited for the next meeting, the next hearing, the next decision. However, nothing seemed to slow her downward spiral. Jody's situation didn't stick out in particular. She fit well into the stats. Drugs, DUIs, and citations for domestic disturbances. In March, not long after the school brought DCF back into her life, Jody tried purchasing a gun at two separate weapon supply stores. She failed the background checks and was refused. But after leaving both stores empty-handed, Jody didn't stop there. Easier than getting a gun was getting a boyfriend. Jody solved her homelessness in March by moving in with her new boyfriend, Henry, a happily licensed owner of a bolt-action hunting rifle, among other guns. For the next three weeks, the couple lived together before Jody's erratic behavior and alcoholism came between them. Just long enough for Henry to take Jody target shooting three times. And as it turned out, she was a pretty good shot, a natural. During her brief honeymoon phase with Henry, Jody entrusted him with her innermost ambitions, which just so happened to be a hit list, and it wasn't a short one. She also told Henry a sinister fantasy she wanted to see played out. Shooting people in the head and watching their brain matter splatter. As DCF continued investigating whether or not Jody was fit to retain custody of her daughter Emma, 
the process triggered every fiber of Jody's being. In her mind, she didn't consider a social worker like Lara to be a hero or a beacon of light. She considered her a threat. After already having two children removed from her care, Emma was Jody's last chance at being a mother. And there was no question, Jody and Emma were indeed exceedingly close. A stark contrast to the relationship Jody had with her own mother, a woman who'd viciously beaten her and her brother as children after the death of their father. At one point, as an adolescent, Jody and her brother had even been forced to live out of a car. Now that she was a mother herself, Jody was determined to have a better relationship with her own daughter. Emma was her best friend in the world. But little girls need more than best friends. They need mothers who can keep them safe. Jody, however, wasn't even capable of keeping herself safe at that point. In May 2015, EMS responded to a welfare check requested by Jody's cousins, Rhonda and Regina. Due to increasingly irrational behavior, the cousins worried that Jody had become suicidal. Answering the call, EMS broke into Jody's apartment. Inside, they found a bleak scene. A shell of a woman in her bed, framed by empty pill bottles and photos of the two other children who'd already been taken from her. It was determined that Jody was a threat to herself and to others, and so she was committed involuntarily for 90 days of mandatory evaluation and treatment. This was a chance for Jody to be in a stable environment. She could make changes to her tumultuous lifestyle and turn things around for her daughter. Only, Jody didn't agree she needed to change. She didn't see herself as the cause of all of her problems and had her own ideas for how to solve them. Jody didn't trust social institutions because in her mind, they'd always failed her and she became deeply paranoid of their intentions. She knew the system well and the medical center allegedly made two glaring errors while she was under their care. First, they violated her privacy rights by informing Washington County Family Court of her psychiatric admission. The second error happened when they failed to prevent another patient from breaking into her room and attempting to get into bed with her. Jody used these infractions to get herself released within days of her admission. On June 2nd, only days later, Jody walked into a local Walmart and purchased ammunition. Meanwhile, the state still had a job to do, advocating for the nine-year-old girl caught up in the whirlwind of Jody's increasingly traumatic escapades. Lara's role as a social worker was to take a hard, unbiased look at the situation and give recommendations for steps needed to ensure the best outcomes for the child involved. It wasn't personal. It wasn't targeted. It was what was in the best interest and safety of the child. This was Lara's job, day in and day out, and in July, it was her time to give her expert opinion as to whether or not Jody should be allowed to retain custody of Emma, no differently than she would have done in any other case. After Lara testified, Jody lost custody of her daughter. Lara then continued on to the next case, like she'd done so many times before, not without compassion, not without empathy and certainly not without hope that the outcome could be different. But in Lara's world, there was always another case, 
another child in peril, another dangerous parent. In a state with 3,000 yearly DCF cases, there's always another Jody Herring. But for this Jody Herring, the court's decision took away her last reason to try to hold her life together. And for her, it was time to make the world pay for every bad moment she'd ever experienced. Jody's complete breakdown had been a long time coming, with her troubles beginning early in life, at the tender age of five, when she found her father with a bullet hole in his skull, dead under mysterious circumstances. After that moment, Jody started suffering seizures and experiencing short periods of near catatonia. Years of being beaten by her mother and her mother's new boyfriend only compounded her declining mental health. Being homeless as a child for a time certainly didn't help either. As an adult, she experienced a string of bad relationships over the years that all closely resembled the home she'd escaped from. Whatever the cause, the outcome was the same. Having her last child taken away was the final straw. On August 3rd, Jody got into an argument with her brother, Dwayne, after she stole some alcohol from him. An argument that ended with the siblings no longer on speaking terms. On August 5th, she cut ties with her boyfriend, Henry. But there was one final thing he could do for her. Only, he wouldn't know that he helped her until it was too late. On August 7th, 2015, roughly four weeks after Jody lost custody of Emma, Jody took a scenic Vermont drive. She started the day early, but this wasn't the foliage tours people read about and save in their Google Maps, and Jody had a passenger riding along with her, a hunting rifle the same one she'd practiced using with Henry. That day, Jody spent time scouting different locations, and for a while that morning, idled outside her mother Janella's house. Their complicated relationship stretched out between them, waiting for something to finally sever it. But whatever she was waiting for never came. Jody's mom didn't go out to meet her, and Jody never went inside. Eventually, Jody started the engine and drove away. At 8 a.m., at a white farmhouse in Berlin, Vermont, the phone rang. No one picked up, but an answering machine received Jody's message. It woke up her cousin Regina's adult daughter, Tiffany Herring Flint. I heard Jody Herring saying, Rhonda, Regina, you might want to stop calling DCF or I'm going to come and shoot your brains out. She threatened them and that's when I woke up and I ran in my mom's room. Tiffany had heard this kind of rhetoric from Jody before. Even still, it bothered her enough to go check on her mom before she left for the day. After leaving the message, Jody's rage continued to boil. She believed her cousins, Rhonda and Regina, had been the ones reporting her to DCF. In her mind, her relatives had stuck their noses where they didn't belong. Meanwhile, at the DCF offices, Lara was having a good day for once. She saw in someone an opportunity for change, a heroin-addicted mother who'd recently relapsed in the presence of her son. Not a pretty story, but a common one. The mother had nothing but fear of the DCF. Before talking to Lara, 
She was sure she'd lose her son. But there was hope, and where there was hope, Lara was sure to spread it. Relapses were an expected part of the recovery process, and Lara told the mother that no one was going to take her son away if it could be helped. In a single conversation, Lara made a breakthrough with the mom. We're not here to make your life harder, she assured her. We're here to help you. At the lowest point in this woman's life, Lara offered compassion, and the mom was filled with new hope and determination to get clean. But for every family Lara managed to help keep together, another family slipped through the cracks. Families like Jody Herring's. On a day when Jody should have still been receiving psychiatric care, she was instead parking her car outside her aunt's home, Julie Falsarano. As Jody got out of the car, she grabbed the hunting rifle. She'd come to fulfill the threat she'd left on the answering machine. The farmhouse was a family home. Jody knew it well. Her aunt had raised two of Jody's cousins there, Regina and Rhonda. They'd all be there gathered together as they so often were. Every decision Jody made from that moment on was planned and coordinated. She'd been thinking about it for months, maybe longer. Inside the farmhouse, Jody rained down her promised retribution at last, and one by one, she gunned down her own family. Rhonda, 48, went down first, but she didn't go down easily. She fought back. But Jody had the gun and the intent to do harm. She took aim and shot Rhonda directly in the stomach. She fell to the floor in her childhood living room, where the two women had undoubtedly shared countless memories together. And Jody's hunt continued, leaving empty bullet casings discarded behind her. She knew exactly where to find her next victim. Julie Falzerano, 73, Jody's aunt didn't put up the same struggle her daughter had. She just couldn't. When Jody stormed the downstairs bedroom, she found Julie sitting up in bed and shot her too. A single bullet, the same way she'd murdered her cousin, right in the torso. Julie died within seconds of being shot. Out of the bedroom and up the stairs, Jody continued her rampage. 43-year-old Regina Herring had shut her bedroom door after hearing the shots, but nothing could stop Jody. She raised her hand and punched straight through it, leaving a hole in the shape of her fist. Cracks couldn't keep her in, and doors couldn't keep her out. Remorselessly, Jody shot her twice. With her aunt and cousin's bodies discarded behind her, Jody left the same way she'd come in, through the same front door she'd used countless times in her life. This last time, she left both doors wide open behind her, walked back into the sunshine, and back into her Subaru. But before Jody continued on her rampage, she called her brother Dwayne just before 3 p.m., the man she'd been through so much childhood trauma and pain with, and the one she always turned to time and time again whenever she was at her lowest. Just before 3 p.m., Jody called his phone, but Dwayne didn't answer. He was busy at work and didn't hear it ring. If he had and chosen to answer it, despite the bad blood between them, maybe he would have reached out and saved her again. In multiple voice messages to him, Jody was hysterical. In one of the first messages she left, 
was a dire warning. If you think anything of your sister, you'll get a hold of me. And then, as abruptly as the rapid-fire calls began, they ended. At 3 p.m., Jody made one final call, completely calm, and told him he should watch the news. You'll wish you got hold of me earlier. It was the last message to her brother. The DCF building in Barrie sat right on Main Street. Traffic was calm when Jody made her first sweep of the parking lot behind the DCF offices. She scouted the area between 3.30 and 4 p.m., driving slowly past the building, but she didn't see who she was looking for and left the location. Pressed for time, Jody drove by the nearby home of Charles Satan, her ex-boyfriend and father of her oldest daughter, Desiree. Charles was very fortunate not to be home that day. Instead, Charles' sister noticed Jody's car in the driveway. She watched from her window as Jody appeared to manipulate an object in her hands, but she couldn't quite see what it was she was holding, and Jody didn't stay for long. With the clock running out, Jody took off again. Her next stop would be her last. Jody went back to the parking lot outside of DCF. Video surveillance captured her pulling into her parking spot and waiting for another eight minutes. As she waited, another car pulled into the spot beside her, driven by a woman named Carlin Sizemore, along with her son Keith, who worked with a maintenance crew for the office building. Carlin noticed Jody all but pressed against the glass of the driver's side window, trying to get a better view at something. As Carlin got out of the car, she accidentally knocked her cell phone to the ground. When she bent down to pick it up and stood up, there was Jody, face to face with Carlin. Realizing something wasn't quite right, she got out of there fast, but not fast enough to avoid witnessing something truly horrifying. At 4.45 p.m., Lara Sobel emerged from her office with her purse in one hand, cell phone in the other. It was Friday, and she had her youngest on the phone. As she walked the same path from the building to her car, a walk she'd done five days a week for years, she had no way of knowing the danger that was waiting for her mere feet away. After first spotting Lara, Jody climbed out of the Subaru and pulled the rifle from the passenger seat. Although there were several witnesses, Jody wasn't concerned about being seen. She killed her own blood relatives just hours before. To Jody, this was justice. At first, she walked at a normal pace, but then her steps suddenly quickened. She then lifted the rifle, shouldered it, took aim, and fired. Right there in the rear parking lot of the DCF offices, in the middle of town, during rush hour traffic. Carlin and her son Keith hadn't even made it inside the building yet when the shot was fired. At the sound of the blast, she turned to see Lara lying on the ground, along with a screaming woman behind a rifle. Inside the building, State Attorney Scott Williams heard the first shot and ran toward it. Across the street, State Attorney Gregory McNaughton was waiting for a friend so they could attend a funeral together. When he heard the first shot, he ducked behind a pickup truck and warned others to get to safety. An office worker who'd also heard the commotion opened their blinds 
and was shocked by what they saw and called 911 instantly. But it was too late. As Lara laid vulnerable on the pavement, Jody pulled the trigger again, this time at close range and yelled, You know what you've done. On Lara's phone, her daughter, only a few years older than Jody's daughter, could barely begin to comprehend what had just happened. That day, Lara died just outside a building she dedicated her life to helping troubled women just like Jody. Above her body, Jody waved the rifle wildly in the air and continued screaming. Everybody got what they deserved, and then suddenly, an eerie calm came over Jody. State's attorney Scott Williams emerged from the building to see his friend on the ground and ran toward her. Jody then set the gun down. Gregory McNaughton and his friend then approached Jody from either side, each grabbing her wrists. She didn't resist. Carlin and Scott Williams tried helping Lara, but there was little they could do. It was too late. Lara was gone. When help arrived, Scott called his wife to go sit with Lara's daughters until their father got home. Gregory McNaughton turned Jody over to the police. She went passively. In the back of the cruiser, Jody started laughing. She had Lara's blood on her clothes and made no attempt to stay quiet about what she'd done. Meanwhile, as Jody was being taken away, Barry spiraled into chaos, with onlookers and news reporters gathering outside the yellow crime scene tape. But as law enforcement cordoned off the crime scene, Lara's body remained there for hours as the crime scene was processed. Unimaginable hours for the family who loved Lara and were looking for answers. And just six miles away, three more deceased women awaited discovery. That wouldn't happen until the next morning when Tiffany Herring returned to the farmhouse with a friend and found the door already open and discovered the horrific and tragic scene Jody had left behind. Vermont lowered its state flag to half-mast in honor of Lara Sobel. The workers at DCF were shaken, changed forever by what had happened. Never before had the risk inherent to their work been so apparent. Social workers around the nation began looking over their shoulders. Would this be the case that ended their own life? Would they walk to their car one day and find it already occupied by a vengeful parent? DCF scrambled to put temporary protections in place until new laws took effect, but Lara's death sowed the seeds of doubt where her life had sown only seeds of hope. They'd lost a colleague, and to many, a good friend. To her family, a loving mother and wife. To her community, a compassionate person, a beacon of light. Hundreds of mourners gathered in Barry to mourn Lara's death, Together with Governor Shumlin, they walked the very steps Lara had every day, straight to where she'd been publicly slain. In the press, Jody was dubbed the DCF killer, but there was also three other victims who received substantially less attention. A paragraph here, a mention there, yet to those close to these women, their world had also been shattered. Randy Herring, brother of Regina and Rhonda, 
was just one of the family members deeply affected by their loss, racking up miles on his truck at night, driving the endless back roads of Vermont. A week after the shootings, Chrissy Johnson, a friend of Regina, organized a vigil outside the farmhouse where the women had been murdered. A group of a hundred attended to remember the women and share their stories. Julie, Regina, and Rhonda's side of the family had avoided most of the trouble that seemed to follow the rest of the Herring family around. Instead of continuing the cycle of abuse, they fished, played cards, focused on raising their kids, and were well-loved by their friends. For them, the state flag didn't lower, and it didn't go unnoticed by their family and friends. It seemed the media had a clear bias between Lara and Jody's slain family. Whether it had been intentional or not, no one wanted to think about generational abuse, spiderwebs that reach out for years, infecting every family branch in some way, and the ugly scars left behind. The incredible irony in all of this was, however, that one of the people who would have been most equipped to empathize with the Herring family's feelings was Lara. Penny Herring described the feeling of being an outcast in the community. I work as a nurse at CVMC, and I have to tell my patients my last name. If they see it on my badge, they ask, are you related to the one that killed that DCF social worker? I say, my husband's mother and sisters were also killed that day. The news failed to tell the whole story. Every time there is news about the murders or a new hearing, it just brings everything back to the day it happened. The lack of sleep, emotions, and non-communication between Randy and I start all over again. It's like we take two steps forward and one step backwards. I hope Jody never gets to have, the free have her freedom because she has taken so many lives and damaged so many families. In 2017, the victims left behind finally got their chance to tell the whole story and were finally given the chance to speak their minds to Jody during her sentencing hearing. This was the moment Jody was finally forced to see herself as something other than a victim. During the statements, Jody could barely focus her eyes on Richard Herring as he described the impact of losing his mother and two sisters all at once. How do you describe the feeling that the story that Tony's family's mentioned in the media or mentioned as an afterthought? Sometimes when I take time to think about it, I get angry and just want to take revenge, but I don't. Other times I break down and cry for no reason. The only thing that really keeps me going is knowing that someday that justice will be served and Jody will never be able to see Emma again. The reason this took place and knowing there is a place waiting for her. When Timothy Sobel gave a statement, he spoke not only for the loss of his wife, but the loss of a mother to her children. Lara planted the seeds of my girl's dreams. They grew beneath the nurturing of mommy, how it was lost. Upon a day in August, when my youngest daughter was only a tender 11 years old, she called her mommy. Mommy, when are you going to be home? Having spoken her last words to her mother, her answer was the noise of mommy being shot down, not once, but twice. Only chaotic sounds filled Lara's baby's ears, the sounds of the hidden, of the unknown, noise without an answer. 
What bitter words can convey the ripples throughout my girls' futures? Ripples of deep anxiety and panic attacks. The fear of being home alone. Who can understand the tales of unremitting anger, sadness, and hopelessness that explodes from everywhere and from nowhere? I beg someone to understand how our family struggles every two weeks with Dad, Dad, I want Mommy back. Dad, Dad, please bring Mommy home. What of happy moments in Lara's daughters' lives when they get married, when they have their own children born? Happy moments, yet what is missing? Yes, Mommy's not here. For once, Jody seemed to respond with another emotion other than rage. I'm very sorry. I can't take back that. That day I wish I could, but I can't. I handle my stress so differently than anybody else does. And I wish I could help myself. I really could. I asked for help several times and I didn't get it. I wished I had. I wished I'd still be down in the Rutland Regional because this would have never happened. And I'm sorry. Jody hadn't only killed an important part of the Herring family, her family, she had left the remaining members to bear the burden for their own name. In the end, Jody Herring was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge acknowledged the destructive history of the Herring family, sympathizing with the trauma it must have inflicted, but that it couldn't justify her actions. It wasn't justifiable to commit premeditated murder against four women or to undermine the social services system at large. According to the judge, Jody had not only committed multiple counts of murder, she helped destroy a community. There were just no excuses left. And now I'd like to introduce you to the movie, Mantra. Aren't you sleeping, Evan? A young man who was haunted by his murdered brother turns to a psychiatrist. Four days ago, my brother was murdered. You can see him, can't you? Whose unorthodox treatment twists his world even further. I would try anything. Mantra will take you on a wild ride into the minds of madness. You won't know what is real until you do. Mantra, available now wherever you stream your movies. Starring Drake Roger from the Winchesters, Alex Suarez, and Dan Franklin. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>